Good morning and welcome to Christian Life Church. Whether you're a longtime member or joining us for the first time, our mission is to create environments where people can encounter God, resulting in purpose-filled lives based on a biblical worldview. If you're watching on your phone, mobile device, or gathered with your family in front of the TV, we invite you for the next few minutes to join us as we worship God, pray together, and hear what His Word is speaking to us today. Our prayer is that you will encounter the God of the Bible who gives us strength, encouragement, and comfort. Oh, God bless you. It is so good to see all of you. Some of you we're seeing in the Spirit, but we see you. We welcome those that are here in the sanctuary and those that are in Brown Chapel as we continue our study that we began a three-part series on uh, the normal Christian life. And in particular, we told you there would be three parts. Part one is hold on to these things. That's what we began last week. We're going to continue it today, finish it. Part two next week is let go of these things. There's some things we hold on to. There's some things we let go of. And part three, there are some things that we live up to, live up to these things. We welcome you. We want you to know that you are loved, you are missed, and you are prayed for. Even though some of you are here and we're getting to see you, we long for the day when we can have a little more interaction and more consistent um, contact activity. Um, but, But what do we do in the meantime? We just, we keep on serving, we keep on loving, we keep on praying. Uh, my oldest grandson, Seth, touches my heart just about every time. Not every time, but just about every time I talk to him. He says, Papa, I want to come back to your house. And he tells me that he wants to, you know, he tells me what he wants to eat, what he wants to do. His, he wants to go with me to the, the lizard stick. He wants to go <laughs> with, with us to the zoo. And um, I always tell him, I can't wait for you to come back. And I'm kind of like that as pastor. I, I can't wait for us to get back. And uh, uh, maybe that day won't be too long, but I want to encourage you. Let me t- give you two scriptures. Number one, the Lord gave us this promise through the Apostle Paul, these promises through the Apostle Paul. He said, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Even if our situation gets interrupted, he's faithful to complete it. And Paul gave these encouraging words. He said, uh, uh, I am persuaded that he is able to keep everything I commit to him against that day. So no matter what we're in, no matter what we're walking through, um, God is keeping us and he's keeping what we commit to him. With that in mind, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? It's on your screen and we're going to join our hearts everywhere right now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. I began last week by explaining what hold on to these things means. We said that there are six things that are marked in Scripture, depending on which translation or which version you read. Um, NIV and uh, a couple others use the phrase, make every effort. There are a half dozen things. We're not saying they're the only things worth extra effort, but they are things that are specifically identified as worth extra effort. What the Scripture is saying is this, whatever you need to do to be sure you walk along this path, Give it the extra effort. Um, other translations say endeavor or be diligent or be eager. I told you the story by way of illustration to help us understand this, that there is a motto that um, the commandant of the Marine Corps initiated a few years ago, and it is this, every Marine a rifleman. Now, we also said that the best I can tell, there are nearly 40 descriptions or, or, or designations of what your job is in the Marine Corps. And it, it ranges from something way over here to something way over here. But the thing that binds them together is that every Marine is a rifleman. Um, and what we're trying to say is as we study our life in the family of God, we realize that we all may have different callings, different giftings, what God puts on Corey's heart to do, he might not put on Glenn's heart to do. What God puts on Cherry's heart to do, he might not put on Alice's heart to do. We all have a different role to play, but there are some commonalities. Just like every Marine is a rifleman, every child of God needs to focus on these things. These are the things that we hold on to. After I preached that last week, uh, an old Marine, I started to say a former Marine, but as my brother, who is a Marine, reminds me, there is no such thing <clears throat> as a former Marine. Once a Marine, you're always a Marine. So <clears throat> one Marine talked to me after the message last week, and he said, you know, he said, I, I'm like your brother. I went through basic training in, at Paris Island. And uh, he said, you know, that was the, uh, a life-changing event in my life. And I said, well, I would imagine so. Um, I, I said, all my life I've been a, uh, um, an ardent follower of my brother's stories of his time in the Marines. And he's one of my heroes. And he said, have you ever had him tell you about the yellow footprints? And I said, uh, yes, he has. We saw them. I said, I've been there and we saw the, the yellow prints. And for those of you that might not know, when a Marine recruit, I assume it's the same way, it was as, as late as a few years ago, when a Marine recruit gets off the bus, there are a set of yellow footprints that is where their journey begins. They are to line up with their feet in the prints. And there's other things you can say about it, but he said, during my weeks of basic training, he said, I thought I was alternately going to die and go to hell. He said, at times I thought I was in hell. He said, at times I didn't know why I had made this foolish uh, decision to join the Marine Corps. And I said, what, what got you through it? He said, those yellow footsteps. 
footprints. And I said, how so? He said, because on the craziest, the most draining of days, whenever we would march or we would go by and I would see those prints, it reminded me that we are on a journey. We started and everything I have to do is to make me a Marine and get me to the place that I want to be. And I thought, boy, I wish I had heard that before this week because I would have included it in my sermon last week. So I thought next best thing, I'll include it in this week. <laughs> Loved ones, that's where we are in the body of Christ. We're going through unprecedented times, un, un, unpopular times, uncomfortable times. We're going through a time when it seems that uh, it's almost if the word of God said that there's coming a shaking and everything will be shaken that can be shaken in order that that which cannot be shaken will remain. It's almost like he said that in scripture, you know. <laughs> and I know that it's tough, but we've got to remember, and you've got to remember, I've got to remember, I know this is difficult, and I, I, and I hate to say it week after week. You say, Pastor, why do you remind us of this week after week? Because we're still going through this, and we're still struggling. But I want to remind you that God has started you on a journey. He's able to keep everything that we commit to him. He still has a plan. He still has a prophetic path mar marked out for us. And we've got to let him do what he's able to do uh, because he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, we talked about those six things that we're to give all of our attention to, or, or the, uh, not, I shouldn't say all of our attention, but to give much attention to, to make every reasonable effort. Now I have to give the disclaimer one more time. These six things sound like works and, and they are, we have to do them. That's why he said, make every effort. The Christian life is not devoid of works. But the Christian life needs to understand the nature of works. And what we talked about for a while last week is that works uh, serve a couple of purposes. Works are the basis for fulfillment in this life. I, I have a greater fulfillment in this life as I please the Lord as I do the works that he's called me to do. I'll never be as happy. I'll never be as fulfilled. I'll never have a life as meaningful as it ought to be if I don't do what God put me on this work to do. But we need to understand it's a matter of my fulfillment, not a matter of my salvation. I am not saved by works. That's through grace, uh, by grace through faith. Um, the other thing we said about works is that works are the basis, I believe, for our reward. When we get to heaven, not everybody's reward will be the same. Um, but there are going to be greater rewards and lesser rewards. I'd rather, be, I'd rather be at the bottom of the pile in heaven than the top of the heap in hell. But in heaven, our works are the basis of our reward. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk about that. It's not just how much you do. In fact, somebody might be able to do a lot more because they have a lot more talent or they live a lot longer. I remember talking to somebody that, uh, uh, not, not a part of this church, but they died just a few months ago. They were in their 90s. And they said, I'm starting to worry. Of course, they were being funny. She said, I'm starting to worry. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that 
all my friends that died in their 70s will think I didn't make it because I'm not there. I've lived so long. Uh, of course, she had heard me tell that story of something that had happened years ago. And um, sometimes people do more because they live longer or they have greater talents. Our reward will be based not on how much we do, but how closely we fulfilled God's purpose and wishes for our life. Jesus said there's no greater in the old covenant than John the Baptist, but John the Baptist had a matter, some say as little as nine months of public ministry, but he fulfilled what God had called him to do. So we started on these make every effort. The first was every effort for holiness. We are to make every effort to live holy lives. We spent most of our time last week talking about the way we walk in holiness is based on two dynamics. Positionally, I am in Christ. God sees me through Christ. I wear not my old tattered robe, but I wear his robe of righteousness. And I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am righteous. I will go to heaven righteous. I don't need to do any, any qualifying in the flesh. I don't need to do any kind of suffering in the flesh for the sake of making myself righteous because I am righteous positionally by his righteousness, but I am also righteous by a righteous lifestyle. I not only stand completely righteous in him, but I complement that by living according to his word. John would put it this way, every man, woman that has this hope in him, meaning of going to heaven when Christ returns, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, John said, we live like Jesus not in hopes of getting to heaven, but we live like Jesus because we are going to heaven. And then we said the second thing was make every effort to forgive. And if I'm not careful, I'll just end up repeating that teaching. But what we said basically is that unforgiveness allows bitter roots to grow up in your life. Um, we said that in the presence of God, now there's worship that goes on all the time, but when you set aside worship, there's two things that the scripture shows us come into the presence of God, come to his throne. One is accusation and the other is intercession. When the enemy appeared, for instance, in the book of Job, or uh, when you look at the, the priest uh, in the book of Zechariah, when the enemy comes, he comes to the throne of God with accusation. He accuses the people of God, and uh, just as he did for Job. But th there isn't just accusation that comes to the throne. There's intercession because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And lovers, I want you to understand that it's not just Jesus and Satan that understand this principle. But from our life, we take into the presence of God either accusation or intercession. When I pray about someone instead of for someone, it may be that I am bringing accusation instead of intercession. Jesus doesn't bring accusation to the father. Jesus never says, 
Lord, Father, I, I, I hate to bring this up about Justin again. He needs help. And I, I knew, I told you at the beginning, we we're going to have trouble with this one. You know, no, all Jesus does is bring intercession. He brings intercession. He stands between disappointment and the reality of my life. We have got to learn and that's another sermon, but it's a little part of this one. We have got to learn the power of forgiveness. And even those of us that might have a dynamic prayer life, every once in a while, we need to ask ourselves the questions. I may spend an hour a day in prayer, but is most of my time spent accusing the people of God or interceding for the people of God? Now, let's move on to those other four things that we're to give uh, earnest attention to. Number one is holiness. Number two is forgiveness. You have your outlines, the um, same outline as last week. Number three is hold on to simplicity. Simplicity. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, uh, the other two verses that we read uh, talk about holiness and forgiveness. Let's find the next make every effort verse, and it's Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God to anyone who enters God's rest, or excuse me, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Um, and then he says, let us therefore do everything that is within our power let us do everything that is reasonable. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now, this is a difficult one to understand because if you're not careful, you will just read this saying, boy, God's serious about Sabbath. We better start dealing with Saturday a little more, little more uh, intentionally. God, this passage is not telling us that you can't pick up sticks on the Sabbath. This passage is not telling you that you can't do this, that, or the other on the Sabbath day. Uh, Paul makes it clear in the New Testament that every day to the child of God is a day unto the Lord and we honor the Sabbath principle, if not necessarily the Sabbath day. You say, well, what, what is the Sabbath day and what is this the big thing about works? The Sabbath day is one of those uh, handful of things that God gave us before the law. The, the Sabbath was one. Uh, tithing was one, prayer and worship were others. God said, there are some things that I want you to live by so you will understand by the rule, you will understand the principle. And he said, I want you to understand that I rested on the Sabbath day because in the economy of God, there's a time to work and there is a time to rest. And when the writer of Hebrews explains this passage, he says, and when you study the context, he's not saying take a day off. He's saying understand the principles of simplicity. When an Old Testament or New Testament believer paid their tithe, it was not just paying a bill God owed, or, or that, that they owed God rather. It was a way of saying, look, you have ordained a kingdom 
by which I can survive better on 90% than I can 100%. And guys, I don't know about you, but not many of us ever live there very often. You know, we, we, keep, uh, we keep struggling to be sure that we don't run out of money before we run out of months sometimes, especially when you're young and just getting started. Man, you've got to be creative. And uh, I remember one of our members from Africa talked about their native language and the word for turnip, uh, any kind of greens that you eat, was basically a word that meant stretch to the end. And they said, we ate a lot of greens the last week of the month because we needed to stretch to the end. But God was saying, when you enter my kingdom, you've got to understand you can give a tenth of it away. And I am, a, I am such a good God, I'm able to take care of you on 90% better than you can manage 100%. The Sabbath is the same principle. Whenever God said you are to have a day of rest, it wasn't just them resting, it was God saying this. Hear me, loved ones. God was saying, if you will put me first, if you will keep life simple, I know that you live from hand to mouth. I know that you need to work every day because it was a very real thing in the nation of Israel in that day. If you didn't work, the average family didn't eat if you didn't work. So for them to take a leap of faith and say, I'm not going to work on this day. The weather's fine. I feel fine. There's work to be done. But to sit back and put the worship of God first, that was a huge thing. That was a huge thing. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to keep life simple. You've got to go back to the principles that little with God is more than much without him. He, he had taught them that in the wilderness with the manna. He said, don't gather on the seventh day, but I will bless you so that you can gather twice as much on the day before. He taught them this in Israel. He said, every seventh year, give the field a rest. Don't plant anything the seventh year. And their thoughts were, then how are we going to eat? How will we have seed for the for the new cycle of years, God said, I will bless the sixth year so that you have enough in the sixth year for the sixth year and the seventh year and seed to start over the new first year. Uh, the, the year of Jubilee, boy, we love year of Jubilee because you know what that means? Everybody I owe money to, I'm set free. That's the way we interpret it. But what happened? God said, I have an inheritance. I hope I'm not boring you with this. This is so important. God said to the children of Israel, the land belongs to you. This land is your inheritance. He says, so in the course of 49 years, if you have to sell the land or you lose it because of disaster or somebody takes advantage of you and you lose what God has given you, he said every 50 years, the calendar, the economy, the land deeds, everything's reset and it goes back to what God intended to start with. And you say, ah! I'm, I've got it all back. Do you know what the emphasis of that holiday was? It was on a small level. It was, I get it all back. But the greater level, God was showing every child of God that every gain they had given, if they would yield it back to him, they would survive and be fine. They would survive and be fine. 
Listen to me, loved ones. God wants you to understand the simplicity. His ways are not grievous. Jesus said, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That sounds crazy. Come on to me. I want you to rest. I want you to rest. And you say, oh, I want to rest. Let me take this yoke off. I want to rest. And what does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you. That's not rest. That's just work under a different yoke. Jesus, what are you saying? He was saying this, when you work life by my yoke, when you work life by my rules, even though you're working, it will bring you rest. That's why we have, what, 1,700 recognized denominations in America. That's why we have, of those denominations, groups within groups. That's why the church has split, uh, has spent at least two-thirds of its history divided among itself. It's because we have tried to complicate everything that God has given us and we keep fragmenting and we keep splitting and we keep falling apart and everybody says we're right and everybody says you're wrong and he says there's a simplicity if you can just get back to the basics. Now, he says, I want you to cease from work. You say, okay, well, so that's, 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 that's me, pastor. I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't give. I don't spread the gospel. I don't do anything because the Lord told me to cease from my works. You got to understand, he didn't tell you to cease from your works. He told you to cease from efforts of the flesh. See, we, we are created for good works. The problem is I can't please everybody who thinks they know what I ought to do. And you can't please everybody who thinks this is the way the Christian leads the Christian life. Now, again, I've got to give a disclaimer. Works are important and there ought to be something about your life where your works differentiate you from the world. But we've never been able to please God by works of the flesh. The church has never represented the kingdom of God well by works of the flesh and hoops we have to jump through. But we take on his yoke we take on his burden because his yoke is easy and his burden is light and you find rest for your souls. I remember my grandmother trying out a new car. My daddy wanted to buy her something. She had an old Chevy Biscayne and uh, she was looking for a new car and he took her to the car lot and he said, well, how does it feel? And she sat down and she tried to turn it. She said, she said Cliff, I'll never be able to, to drive this. This, I can't even turn the wheel. And my daddy reached over and cranked it up. He says, he says, mama, it's called power steering. And he said, but the problem is you've got to have the engine on before the power steering works. You see, she found out my grandmother started doing something she told me to never do. She'd put her arm up on the window and drive one handed. And I thought, well, you're not living up to your teaching. But she discovered when I get in the car and I crank it up, all kinds of things work. So we've got to understand that works are good, but not works of the flesh. If you try to serve God in the works of the flesh, you will be exhausted. So we've got now, again, this is one of those things that's so easy to get out of balance. Simplicity doesn't mean I do nothing. Simplicity means I do the right things. 
Okay, let's go on. You're, 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 you're lagging. He says, number four, hold to holiness, make every effort for holiness, forgiveness, and simplicity. Number four, he says, hold on to encouragement. Never walk away from encouragement. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, meaning that's, those are the very rules he was talking about. Uh, you've got to understand that he was talking about the legalism that the Galatians were fighting against, where some believers that had come out of Judaism were saying, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. He said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort, there it is again, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, what Paul is trying to get across to these people in Rome, much like he had to get across to the churches of Galatia, he says, don't be harsh in regard to yourselves. Let go of legalism. Don't, don't try to live by a set of rules that, uh, as was described in the Bible, as neither ye nor your fathers were able to keep. And he's not talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the laws they put on the law. He says, let go of legalism. And then he said, let go of judgmentalism. He said, you're going to have a set of convictions and standards that might not be shared by someone else. Let me put it to you this way, loved ones. There are things that we know are wrong because the scripture says thou shalt not. There are things we know are right because the scripture says thou shalt. You know, there are things that we do because of scripture. There are things we don't do because of scripture. But there is a whole range of things that are not clear in scripture, whether you can do this or do this or do it that way or do it that way. And we have to form what we call our convictions, our convictions. If I have a conviction about something, it means that I don't teach it as a foundational doctrine of the church, but in my opinion, for the way I live my life, I'm going to do this or not do this. It's a conviction. And, and, and you know what? We ought to live with those convictions. We need to keep our conscience clear. There are things that I don't do, not because I think they're wrong, but because I just have my, it would, it would soil my conscience. Um, so I, I, I don't do it. <coughs> I would never be a, a consumer of alcohol, not because I think someone that takes a drink of wine at dinner is going to hell, but because the church I was raised, I would, every little old lady that's gone by way of the grave would come back and haunt me if I had a glass of wine at dinner. You know, it, it's, it's my conviction. It's, it's something I don't have to do even if I had a freedom to do it. And, and, and you're gonna find that there are probably a couple of dozen things like that in your life that it's, this is how I believe, this is where I draw the line. But you can't give a chapter and verse that says, this is why. You've got to let folks stand or fall before God with their own convictions. 
you've got to understand, Paul said, some of you understand that we have freedom to eat meat offered to idols because uh, all, all food has been pronounced clear by the Lord. In the gospel of Mark, um, Peter was telling us, Mark's a collection of Peter's sermons, when Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. He, there's an odd little phrase in there. It says, by this, he pronounced all foods clean. Peter was looking ahead in, in that commentary that Mark wrote down. He was looking ahead to the event with the unclean animals and stuff that were let down. He understood where this was going, even though not everybody understood it. But he says, you may know that all clean, uh, food is clean, but what about the person like little Stevie Chitty that was raised in Eastside Assembly of God that was very, very, very conservative and, and was taught that even if you walk by a bottle of wine, if you can smell it, you probably have sinned in your heart <laughs> and need to repent. He's, and, and I don't mind being called weaker because weaker doesn't mean weaker. Weaker means more sensitive. He says, there are people that don't, that don't share your conviction. And what did he say? He said, live with them in peace. Now, I know you can't live in a way that will, that will please everybody, but you don't flaunt your freedom in front of somebody. And you don't disregard someone's standard. I tell you, there was a time I used to kind of laugh at uh, um, some of the, the, the culture I grew up in. And, you know, and I, I, I thought about every woman had, had high hair. And, and, I, and, and I said, I think some of them were in bondage, you know, <laughs> instead of, and it sounded so great and people loved it. And I came under such a conviction of the Holy Spirit. Those ladies were the people that prayed me through to salvation. They were the ones that got down on their knees and prayed me through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They're the ones that, that prayed me to victory after victory. And I am through. I've made a, a, a commitment to the Lord with his help. I'll never make fun of someone's conviction again. And I'll tell you something else. There are some convictions that I don't even agree with, but I respect and honor. And he says, make every effort to hold in onto encouragement. The, somebody put it this way. The church at Corinth had two problems. One, some people were hypocritical and some people were hypercritical. And I don't know which one is worse. The people that don't live what they say or the people that are critical of others who live differently from them. So this is what he says, make every effort to build people up. That's what edify means. We call a building an edifice. It is something that is built up. He says, so make every effort to encourage one another, keep your conscience clear, and you don't have to be the arbiter of what's right or wrong in their experience. Let's go on. You getting this fast. Now, let's go on to number five. Make every effort to hold on to peace or unity. I use the word peace. I wish I'd use the word unity um, because peace can mean something. Peace is a, is a little different word in English than it is in, in Greek. And I wish I'd use the word unity because when I say hold on to peace, that sounds like I could be just saying stop fighting. But peace is not just not fighting. It's not just a cessation of hostilities. Peace is a very positive thing. 
It's, a, it's, a, it's an enriching thing. And unity might be a, a better word. He says in Ephesians 4.3, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he sums it up. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, he says, you're going to find your life is better, more meaningful. You're going to find yourself set up for a greater rewards if you learn a few simple principles. Number one, I don't have to have an opinion about everything. My wife said something the other day that I thought was profound. She said, you don't have to accept every invitation to a fight. Now, I know that's sitting in some of you are saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Well, I'm like that too. I remember whenever there was a popular set of books, I always tried to read them with my kids to be sure they were okay or whatever. And I remember starting, reading, starting on the series by Lemony Snicket. And uh, so it sounds like nobody in here read it, but... Uh, there's, a, there's the, the, the Baudelaire children, three of them that are just being taken advantage of by a very evil Count Olaf. Now, Olaf does these despicable things and then gets away. Next book, despicable things, gets away. That's all right for the first 17 books. <laughs> but after about book seven or eight, I'd slam the book down. I mean, my little kids are there listening to me. I'd say, kill him. <laughs> kill him. I remember throwing a book across the room saying, I'm done with this. Olaf should have been dead two years ago. And they're letting him go. He needs killing. None of this is going to get resolved until Olaf is dead. You say, well, how did the series end? I don't know. I quit reading them. I refuse to subject myself to an idiot getting away with it every time. But God says, even with the Olaf's in your life, keep unity of the spirit through bond of peace. You say, well, surely that's talking about our relationship with Christians. I think primarily it is, but you know, you know, we, we, we have somehow, in this political climate, in this sociological climate, we have done exactly the opposite of dealing with our enemies the way the Lord tells us to deal with our enemies. And somehow, we're wanting to fast and pray that our ways will work. There's a lot of Olaf's I want dead. Not necessarily dead, but dead to me dead to my world. And he, you know what he said? He said, when people start bothering you, we go back to the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is what he said. He said, when he prayed for those, this is Jesus about to go to the cross. He prays for three things. And if he may have prayed for other things, we don't know. But he said, Father, I ask you to do three things for my people. Give them security. 
See, when, if I know I'm about to die, I, I don't care about SEC football. And I've never cared about ACC football. <laughs> but I don't even care about SEC football. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I, I've just, I've, I, know, I know a couple of you this morning have already showed me your Clemson stuff. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to spend my last hour praying about or talking to my family about football or about the stock market or about politics. If I know I've only got an hour to live or an hour to pray or an hour to be with my family, I want to pour into their life the things that will make all the difference in the world for them. And that's what Jesus did. He said, Father, number one, I pray that they will know how secure they are. I pray that they will know that no one can pluck them out of your hand. He knew that there were going to be days when we felt alone and we felt abandoned. He knew there would be days when we felt that he had forgotten us. But Jesus says, Father, in the closing moments of my time in intercession, let them know how secure they are and that I will keep them. I will keep them. I will keep them. He said, secondly, let them know how pure they should live. He said, they, they are in this world, but they are not of this world. Help them to know that it makes a difference how they live. Help them not to divide life into, into you know, heavy-duty sins and light-duty sins and a trip to the altar every week. I can just get rid of this stuff. Help them to know what it means to be pure. But you know what the third thing he prayed for? He, he wants me to be pure. He wants me to know how secure I am. The third thing that he spent time on, he said, Father, keep them united. Let them be one as you and I are one. And you know, this is a prayer that has not been answered in its fullness. He said, by, all, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, the way you love one another. And all you have to do is have a Facebook page or, you know, and even those that say we need to love one another, do it with such venom and anger. You know, we need to love each other, dadgummit. He said, keep them united because if they can keep united, the world will change. Here's the last thing that he tells us to hold on to. He says, now I want you to hold to holiness. I want you to hold to forgiveness. He said, I want you to hold to simplicity and encouragement and unity. And here's the last thing he says. I want you to hold to maturing processes. In other words, he says, I want you to keep doing things that will make you grow up. This is the one I don't like because it requires me to do things. And after I do it, it requires me to make it perfect. And after I make it perfect, it requires me to do something else. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Everything we need is in us. It's called the grace of God. Remember, grace is God's goodwill toward us, but it's also God's good work in us. Everything we need to become what we're destined to be has been given to us. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Here's verse five. For this reason, because everything's in you, and because there's so much more you and I are called to be, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, See, whenever we grade ourselves on perseverance, godliness, self-control, mutual affection, love, we realize that we may not even have a passing grade. But he says, keep working on it and they will increase in their measure and they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He says, just keep getting more like Jesus. Keep the maturing process going. Keep growing up. Remember what Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke and acted and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Oh, it's not easy. It's not easy. You say, well, how do I keep growing? How do I know I'm growing? Well, you, you take advantage of the means of grace. That means you pray, you stay in the word, you gather with God's people. And, and sometimes there are times that you can only do that, you know, online. I understand that. But you keep, you keep gathering, you keep reading, you keep praying, you keep opening your heart to the things of God. You fill your life with the right kind of people. You, you, you see, I believe the scripture teaches that we need in our lives, not only in the natural, but in the spiritual, we need a parent or parents, we need siblings, and we need children. I'll explain to you what I mean. Uh, uh, I need a parent. A parent is a mentor. A parent is someone who knows more than you know. A parent is someone who is better at something than you are. And I know the older we get, the harder it is to have parents because we're, we're getting, we're getting, we should be getting to the top of some things. And sometimes it's hard to find a mentor, but Paul had a Barnabas, someone who leads me forward, someone who pours into me, someone who steps up for me. And I want to tell you this, a person may be your mentor for years and then no longer be your mentor, but you cherish them as a mentor because you may have excelled them. You need a parent, you need siblings, that's a brother or sister. And that's a partner. You know what brothers and sisters are? They are partners who can carry the load. Your brothers and sisters are partners who carry the load. Paul, when he, um, he started with Barnabas, but then he gained Silas. 
And when you read the story of Paul and Silas, um, Paul definitely had a more outgoing personality, but Silas had the same kind of giftings that Paul did, and they carried the gifts together. And you need some children. You need some learners. Paul had a Timothy, a, a developing disciple in whom you can entrust things. That's why John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. He wasn't just talking about being pastor over a church. He was talking about that. But he said, I have been pouring my life into you for all of these years. It was, it's probable that the epistles of John were written to the church at Ephesus. He pastored there for a long time. He served for a long time as apostle. He said, but you have moved from being my children to being able. He, he said, you'll always be my children, but you carry the load yourself. I, 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 I don't say this enough to my children because I don't want them to think I'm not daddy anymore. But I'm so proud of my children because the things that I used to wonder, how do I teach them? And then wonder, when do I teach them? And then wonder, have I taught them well? I see them doing now. And, and, and they are always be my children. They'll always be my little girl, always be my little boys. But I realize that perish the thought, if I was taken out of their lives, I poured what I need to into, them, into their lives for them to teach their children. And by the way, thank you for praying for my new granddaughter that was in NICU, she is home now, home now. <clears throat> so how do we wrap this up, Pastor? What do we do with this? Well, we've got about eight minutes. Let me, let me wrap it up in that eight minutes time. Three Christian life lessons. Number one, this is how we live it out. Avoid the trap of double-mindedness. There's at least two places in Scripture, depending on the translation you use, maybe as many as four, where we're told to avoid being double-minded. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. It's interesting to me, the Scripture never tells us not to be two-spirited, not double-spirited. No, when we become a Christian, we pass from death to life. We're born again. We become the children of God. There's not two of you. There's not the evil Justin and the saintly Justin. Justin has become a brand new creature. So we're not two-spirited, and we're certainly not two-bodied. Now, we feel that way sometimes. We have in our closet our skinny clothes, our fat clothes, and then the ones that we <laughs> usually live at. But it's really the same body. We're not two-spirited. We're not two-bodied. But the Bible makes it clear it's very easy for us to be two-souled. That's what the translation, English, it says double-minded. The Greek literally says two-souled. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. And the scripture says when it comes to the way you think, that's where the battle is now. Our spirit's going to heaven. That's a done deal. Our body will be born, uh, not born, but will be transformed and we'll have a resurrection body, but that's down the road. The battle right now is in our soul, our mind, our will, emotions. That's why we're told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we need to remember that we are in a battle and we've got to fight to win, not just fight to survive. Loved ones, the Christian life becomes easier when you devote yourself to it fully. Avoid the trap of being too sold. Number two, realize that persistence is the key to this. 
These things that we make every effort to hold on to, persistence is the key. Your emotions will wax and wane. Your enthusiasm will rise and fall. But we have to come to the place where that great man of God in the Old Testament came. When he looked out over all the people of God, he says, now every one of you have got to make a choice. He says, I'm not going to try to shame you into doing this or shame you into not doing that. I, I, the longer I'm a pastor and the more we face as a church, the more I realize I cannot force anyone to make a decision one way or the other. This is what he said. He said, you choose whom you will serve. You make that choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, what he was saying is I can't accommodate a message to hold every point of view. I can't, I can't say things that never offend or take positions that never cause fur to fly. He said, but you've got to make your choice and I've got to make mine. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And at the heart of that is persistence. Everybody's got to make that decision. It wasn't just Joshua. It's not just a pastor. Everybody's got to decide, I am going to be this today and I'm going to be this tomorrow. I am going to serve the Lord and I'm going to walk in persistence. And here's the final thing. Keep life as simple as possible. There was a time in my life we could not afford two car payments. I had one for uh, a vehicle for, Rebecca, uh, for uh, Ramona and the transportation of our baby boy, Jeremy. I wanted them to be safe. And whenever we were family, we went in that. I drove a 1977 sewer truck. I mean, it was literally a sewer truck. Um, it had served for, I think, uh, 14 years um, for the little town that we lived in, it was their sewer truck. I bought it at an auction for $299. I loved driving around with a sticker that said sewer department. I loved it. But somebody in church felt sorry for me and had it painted. You know, they, they had a paint and body shop and they blessed me with it. They painted it, but took my sewer sticker off. That's what I'd been driving. When we bought our, our first minivan, you know, because we knew that we were having another child and we were going to need a bigger vehicle, we bought um, a minivan and uh, I went and I looked under the hood um, and I did one thing immediately. I went, took my bag of tools that I, went, that I took with me everywhere in the sewer truck. And I just threw it in the garage and said, I'll never be able to use these again. There were things, creatures, alien inventions under the hood that I didn't understand. And I said that day the same thing that I say now when I get another vehicle. I, I mean, I appreciate the, the accommodations. But when the salesman says, boy, this will do that and the computer will do this and you'll have this, that and the other. And my mind is it's just something to break. It's something else to break. Give me a 57 Bel Air with an air conditioner. <laughs> I went to preach at my home church. Becca was the only kid not in school. She went with me. And I, I wanted her to just have a little taste of my heritage. I, I was here uh, as pastor of this church. I'd been here maybe, maybe two or three years. And I went to preach at my home church. 
And Rebecca, who is very, very practical and very logical, and if there's an easier way to do it, she'll find it. She's just absolutely brilliant like that. During worship, during the song service, she pulled my coat and said, Daddy, Daddy. She's a preschooler. I said, yes. She said, this is brilliant. I said, what's brilliant, baby? I sat down by her. She said, they have the songs all in a book. They're all in a book. She said, nobody has to look for the slide for the overhead projector. The songs are in a book. And I said, yeah, that's amazing. She says, we need to do this at our church. And I said, yeah, you're right. She, she understood that we want to keep life as simple as possible. What does Paul say? What do the, does the New Testament say? I should say, don't clutter your life with unnecessary things. The reason for that is that you'll be able to give your energy to those things worth extra effort. Holiness, forgiveness, simplicity, unity, the maturing process. These things are so important. Now, let me wrap it up with this. I want to tell you a story of... Uh, no, I can't do it. I'll save it for another sermon. I'll save it for another sermon. I'm not trying to tease you with it. I just realize it, it'll take me too long. So I'll save it for another sermon. We'll come back and I'll tell you the bit of information that will change your life forever, make you wealthy. No. No, 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 no. It was, it was just another illustration of what I'm trying to say. Loved ones, as we move forward, as we find those yellow footprints and realize that we're on a journey, when we realize we're on a journey, make every effort it doesn't mean that you can't have hobbies. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun. It doesn't mean that you can't have moments of amusement or get in the floor and wrestle with the kids. That's not what this make every effort is. But the New Testament says, if you're going to be everything God called you to be, be sure that you clear out on essentials so that you have the time and energy to make every effort for these things like holiness and forgiveness and simplicity and encouragement and unity and just, just keep growing. Now, I want to pray for you today, but you would think I would say, if you want to get in line and get started, you know, come on up. I don't want to do that. Uh, that's a decision you've got to make, and you can make it at home in your recliner, or you can make it by your bedside tonight. You can make it right here in church if you're here. But you've, you've got to decide, am I going this way or that way? I understand that. Now, what, what we've got to understand that what I want to do right now is to pray for those of you that are struggling. Some of you are just struggling. You say, I believe that I'm on a journey. I love the Lord. But pastor, you don't know what this last six or seven months has been like for me. The uncertainty of my work, my, my business is collapsing. Um, everything that has been a, a, a source of refuge in my life seems to be either taken away or threatened being taken away. I'm, I'm just so fearful. Loved ones, I just want to pray for you. I don't want to pat you on the back and tell you everything's going to be okay. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you that God is over everything that we're facing.
I'm not saying he's responsible for it, but he's over it. He's able to guard your heart in the middle of it. We used to sing a song I haven't heard in years. We used to sing, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I've often said, it's not over till the fat angel sings. And we've got to just keep plotting. But while we're plotting, call upon him. Let loved ones pray for you. If you're here, you're in Brown Chapel, you're here in the sanctuary, and you want prayer, I invite you when the camera's uh, turn in another direction, just come uh, and come to the front and we will escort you to a place where we will pray for you and minister to you. And I am proud to announce if you are watching our service on live stream today and would like for someone to pray for you, there's a number you can call and someone will pray for you right now. Uh, the number is 803. Uh, and if we got it, yeah, we got it on the screen. 803-798-4488. There's a ministry team ready to hear from you and they would love to pray with you. Loved ones, we are going to get through this and we are going to go forth in victory. We're going to see the greatest days of the church. We're going to see the greatest days of Christianity. We're going to see a harvest that is greater than anything imaginable. Let's just make every effort to stay on track with it. Father, I, I pray that as this broadcast ends, this simulcast ends, the live stream is over. I pray that your presence would be not only here at church, but for those who are listening. Smile upon them with your favor and grace. Help us all to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You set our feet on this path a long time ago, and many are, have been the days when we've wondered, what have we gotten ourselves into? But there's a purpose, there's a plan. Before we ever saw those spiritual yellow footprints, you knew what you would do, and you knew how you would do it, and you knew how you would get us through it. So we say we trust you, Lord. Receive us as your children, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. God bless you. Join us next week, and we'll be talking about things to let go of, things to let go of. Thank you for joining us in worship today. I hope you'll be with us next week at our online service to encounter His presence once again. If you'd like to know more about the ministry of Christian Life Church, please visit our website at clcolumbia.com or you can call us at 803-798-4488. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may you have a great week. God bless you.